Take the inaugural rip. <laughs> I was over ambitious there. It's <laughs> the bye bye rip. God. <laughs> We've only had like two real guests. Aside from our 420 special last year. Mm-hmm. And I feel like both times I've uh, maybe been too eager to impress or please with my bong ripping skills and have pulled a little harder. It's a lot to live up to. Yeah, I'm you impressed. Know. I'm impressed. So anyways, welcome once again to Hotbox the Cinema. I'm Nathan Smith. I'm Seth Shepard. And today we have our second guest, as Nathan just alluded to. In that little story about impressing other people, uh, who is Mike Thorne? Yeah, uh, Mike Thorne. Um, a we have been friends for a while uh, through the wide world of of Twitter and Letterboxd. Um, you know, I'm sure that people who are listening probably because the people who are often listening to this podcast are in these same circles and on the same platforms that we are on. Uh, Probably familiar with your work as a critic and a horror writer. Um, for those who don't know, though, Mike has a number of of upcoming texts, uh, which I'm like super excited about. Um, you are the author of the forthcoming Shelter for the Damned, um, and also uh, you're really excellent short story collection darkest hours i was really excited to see that that's getting a reissue with some commentary from you some of your criticism uh which just like your horror writing i i feel like not to like kiss your ass or blow smoke up your ass maybe more appropriately for this show uh but <laughs> i think that you're just like i mean generally like i look to your thoughts on film a lot, but specifically, especially when it comes to horror, you know, you're always someone I'm, I'm looking to, uh, you know, when a new, a new horror movie comes out, I'm always awaiting your take and I'm always looking for like your sort of sometimes, you know, film maudits that you found and scavenged. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, that was a very long intro. No, thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, the respect is mutual. Yeah. Nathan and I go back. Always, we wrote like a long dialogue on Rob Zombie's Halloween duology for Cinematary. 
I guess that was a couple years ago now. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was like 2018, I think. Um, yeah, and we've always talked since then about doing something sort of similar to that. Um, you know, it's hard to find the time, but I think we found here today with with what we'll talk about in a little bit, I think is is something that is suited both to you and I, our interest, but also to the interest of Seth and I as hosts of this podcast. Um, doing a little vulgarism, perhaps, you know, finding a a mm-hmm. director who has not really been studied, but I think we all agree has some pretty interesting things going on in her work. Um, but before that, you know, we always like to talk a little bit, of course, about what we have engaged with media-wise recently. Um, I don't know if anybody has any strong feelings or anything that they're really itching to start with. I don't know, Seth, if you want to start or Mike. Um, um, I don't know. Do you have any, Mike? Um, last night, I just watched a really uh, bizarre and interesting uh, kind of late career Bela Lugosi movie um, called The Return of the Vampire, um, which was uh, unusually for late career Bela Lugosi. It was like a mainstream studio release. Um, and he's essentially playing Dracula again, but he hangs out in this really moody soundstage cemetery with um, a uh, thinly veiled Wolfman knockoff, lots of fog, um, Bela Lugosi being charismatic and awesome. Um, it's a wartime film as well. And that kind of hovers on the peripheries of the narrative. How does it show in like the wartime? Oh, there's, there's like uh, several sequences where more than anything, it's used as like a a plot device. So there are bombings throughout the films, Mm -hmm. um, kind of like air raid bombings that end up like, um, at one point, smashing apart the cemetery that Lugosi has been buried in with a stake in his heart and he's rediscovered. And the guys who rediscover him are like, we should remove this stick from this corpse's heart. That that must have blown into his heart during the bombing. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. I really dug it. I just finished that uh this morning. I started watching it last night. Um yeah that one comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I've been on like some eight late 80s early 90s kind of like just mediocre to like above average action movies lately i just kind of fell into a hole of watching like die hard 2 and roadhouse never seen roadhouse before and that movie is like i don't i don't understand it (laughs) yeah i don't know i mean it feels like a movie that is sort of uh I, you know, I'm not, I don't really like the sort of language of like guilty pleasures or like so bad it's good. And it feels like a movie that is like very hard to separate from that reputation. Like, you know, it feels sure. like uh, there's a lot of movies like that where so many cinephiles are like, oh no, no, you know, actually it's like a good, you know, seriously a good movie. You know, it's not like, you know, you know, you're wanting to like dispel that kind of mythology, but I feel like I don't really know. I don't know very many people who are like, no roadhouse is like, is, is just good. Like, I, I mean, I don't know. It's enjoyable, but have you seen it before Mike? Yeah. I I remember having a blast with it, but it's like, it's, it's ridiculous. It's a lot Um, of fun for sure. I just like remember like all the peculiarities of it that were pointed out to me by like my brother in terms of like, you know, like late 80s homoerotic action or Mm -hmm. just like that type of like last 30 minutes going and raiding the bad guy's house or something like that. I feel like 
that stuff is kind of like generic and maybe like explored in more interesting ways than like other movies from that period. But on the other hand, it is kind of just like a shonen anime about a honky tonk bodyguard and security guard, which is that's interesting to me, though. I've, I mean, I've always loved the detail that like Patrick Swayze in that movie has a like PhD in philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's uh, that's that's good screenwriting. I feel mm-hmm. like top tier. But at a point, it also like is just thinking about all the like bars that I've been to with security guards and imagining like the security guards thinking that they're like Patrick Swayze when they're just sitting at the door checking IDs mostly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, who, who doesn't want to be Patrick Swayze for real? Isn't he like haunted by the memory of ripping a guy's throat out to throw the film? And there's this pivotal character moment near the end where he's about to rip out someone else's throat and he withdraws. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had a lot of fun. It's it's definitely a lot of fun. And it's like the only role I've ever seen Ben Gazzara in where I got just like really pissed off at his character. <laughs> the other ones I've seen, he's just incredibly charming. And somehow this movie totally soured it <laughs> in this interest. I mean, I don't think it's it's like a it's a misunderstood effect or anything like that. But I've just never seen anything like that before. I guess recently for me, I. You know, I, it's been a little bit now since I watched it and I keep like meaning to write something about it on Letterboxd about like why I liked it because most people did not like it. Um, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. So I figured I might just like stump for it on the podcast. Might as well uh, use this platform that I've constructed for myself. Uh, but I, much to my surprise really quite enjoyed uh patty jenkins wonder woman 1984 you know i'm i'm a, a fan of the snyder verse uh but I, I you know i thought i don't know the first wonder woman was like fine i seth, seth actually you and i saw that together and really my kind of most coherent memories of that movie are actually not like the movie itself but the fact that uh, a few rows in front of us there were these guys and like halfway through the movie there was this loud <laughs> like glass or metal like crash I forgot this was during the Wonder Woman thing. Yeah, it was during Wonder Woman. And uh, I mean, it was like a Friday night, like opening weekend, like screening situation. It was. Yeah, it was fucking packed. Yeah. And so there was just this like crash a few rows in front of us. And then the movie ends, the lights come up and we're getting up to leave. And, you know, there's a lot of people. So we're walking out slowly. And I looked down and from like the area where the crash came from, there were these two dudes like literally passed out on the theater floor covered in spilled popcorn from these massive popcorn buckets. And I mean, that was like kind of a situation where I was like, maybe I should see what's up with these dudes. But I was also just like, what? Like, damn you just got fucking trashed uh yeah you're so excited for that rep that female representation um that you just got fucking hammered oh they were just really uh, drunk yeah i think so it was like a theater that had it like the theater had a really fancy bar at in the lobby of it 
And also it was like the theater was located in like this walking strip downtown with a bunch of like bars and stuff <laughs> where people were just going off that night, I guess. Yeah, I kind of assumed that like the crash, like after I saw them on the floor, it was kind of like, OK, I assume that's like was a bottle of some kind. Um, but anyways, aside from the point, Wonder Woman 1984, um, you know, people fucking hated it, but I just found it kind of like oddly compelling and charming from the jump because of like how plastic it is and um it's like i don't know it has this kind of candy coloredness in a way that uh, a lot of contemporary superhero movies don't and not even necessarily in like a fully like neon sort of 80s throwback way that you would sort of infer from like what the movie is sort of billed as um i saw i wish i could remember who so i could uh cite cite them but i saw somebody on twitter say like wonder woman 1984 like is less nostalgic for the actual 1980s and more nostalgic for like the 1980s nostalgia of the early 2000s and i felt like it was sort of these like so, so many layers of like now of cycles of cultural nostalgia for the 1980s that it just felt like very watered down and not quite as like referential and a like uh in a sort of i don't know it was it's just like not as much of a sort of pastiche in that way as i expected um but i just it's just like structurally it tries to do something very different from most other superhero movies where like people were really going after it on twitter for the fact that a magical wishing stone is integral to the plot of the movie and like the villain is this sort of failed or failing ponzi scheme like oil executive played by pedro pascal um you see his like sort of cheesy video tape ads like in the beginning of the movie his infomercials um he sold people all these like shares in his oil company but there's no oil on the land he owns and so he like at the like art museum where wonder woman works there's a rock that has wishing powers and he shows up one day because he's like a donor to the museum and he sort of he steals it and he wishes to become the wishing stone which i thought was just fucking wild like i don't know i've never seen that in a movie where like a wish someone's granted wishes you know like in aladdin it's not like i wish to become the genie like what if that happened like and so i thought that was in to have it be a rock too so like this dude is like throughout the movie he's like physically morphing and sort of like falling apart as he's trying to grant people wishes and so mm -hmm. he's like at the beginning of trying to sort of grant people you know he's trying to obviously like wish for like oil he's trying to grant people their wishes so he can get land and power and capital um and investors and in some and he's also this sort of like vitamin new age wellness guy and it almost in some ways seems to me and my reading seems to be about the sort of connections in like, I don't know, like Amer the American intelligence industry and the sort of like uh, like the new age industrial complex, you know, the sort of like men who stare at goats kind of psychic warfare shit. Like it mm -hmm. almost feels like sort of a metaphor for that a little bit. And so eventually he starts to try to become the most like powerful person by granting every person on earth their wish, which like. I don't know, you know, there's like interest, a lot of interesting directions you could go in that that the movie doesn't go in. But instead of having some kind of like insane, like climactic, like planet destroying battle sequence, the like epic climax of the movie is like 
earth turning into like just sheer chaos because like people have wished for all these cows and like people have wished for cars and they're like racing in the street and Porsches and like just utter chaos has descended. And it's maybe not like, I don't know. I think there's a lot of visual opportunities the movie could take that it fully doesn't. So I'm not being out here like Wonder Woman 1984 is, is it a, misunderstood masterpiece but it's just like it's it's so odd it was so odd to me like that's really just like what pulled me towards it it also sort of implies that like wonder woman has basically been an incel for like decades or something um because like after chris pine like died in the first movie she's like not been with any man but she's getting like hit on to this like absurd degree throughout the movie like just literally every man is like gawking at her but she's just like nope i'm like i've never being in a relationship ever like i don't know it's very or i guess that's not incel but like volcel or whatever anyways but and then she like wishes to bring chris pine back and he's like in another dude's body but she sees him as chris pine so there's some sort of weird body swapping shit going on it's like heaven can wait yeah it's just like it's yeah it has that well it does have that kind of on honestly like strange goofy charm of something like heaven can wait or like defending your life or like one of those sort of like magical or Peggy Sue got married. I don't know. One of those sort of magical, like eighties rom-coms and some touches. I don't know. That's maybe an odd comparison. And I hadn't thought about it until you like said that Seth. but like totally like just the logic of the movie is not sort of conventional superhero or action blockbuster logic. And so, you know, I, it, it is like kind of sloppily strung together in a lot of ways. And Gal Gadot is definitely a, a kind of wooden performer, but I liked honestly some of, I don't know. I kind of liked the woodenness and a like sort of yeah. Jack Smith writing about Maria Montez kind of way as this sort of like, like plaster of Paris, like artificial movie deity. Like she's just, it's just everything about her feels incredibly unreal and, and it just sort of works for the movie. Um, so What you said about the nostalgia of the movie for like the 80s, it's kind of funny because the first movie I felt like had a similar nostalgia that I think we talked about on this podcast before of like the World War One nostalgia where everything looks like like a Thomas Kincaid painting, a lot of bloom lighting and stuff. Everything has this very like warm kind of color palette to it. Yeah, I found it very different visually from the first one because it's a lot more kind of cartoon comic book in a more like pop art sense i felt like compared to the first one which maybe makes sense because of the like temporal shift you know i feel like maybe Mm -hmm. like the captain america movies didn't quite do that so overtly but i do think they had a sort of aesthetic a shift between the like first one being set in the 40s and then this the other ones well i think it's interesting because like the title of the movie like more than half of the title length is dominated by just the year that it takes place in so it seems almost like the setting is like the like the selling point yeah and that's i think what maybe sort of lends itself to be seeming like such this such this like product of nostalgia but um i I really liked x-men apocalypse uh which is also like an 80s period piece and that i feel like had way more like active references um to the 80s and i felt like there were plenty of times in this movie there were a lot of times in this movie where I was not even sure that it was set in the 80s. Like a lot of the fashions are not 
trying to be overtly like period it feels a little lazy and some and i think people a lot of people didn't like that laziness even if they don't want something that's like constantly winking at you they wanted a more authentic sort of period piece or whatever but i kind of liked that artificiality of it i don't know it's just like it's a fucking like comic book movie and the only times the comic book movies really work for me is when they lean into the comic bookiness uh of it so that's why you love watchmen oh god i wish i, I mean I, as a Zack snyder defender i kind of wish i liked watchmen but i don't really like watchmen very much to be honest anyways um to talk about actually what we came here to talk about today um we are doing a little tribute to a filmmaker who just passed away recently um unfortunately the late stacy title who first off what a fitting name for a filmmaker you know fitting yeah yeah she's got stacy i mean stacy title she was born to make up titles for things <laughs> and and uh one of her movies in particular her most famous movie i think has a great fucking title the bye bye man mm -hmm. uh what a title just instantly iconic you know whether it's a meme or whether like us you think it's a, a pretty good movie actually um it's just like the bye-bye man like what the fuck like what the fuck is that you see mm -hmm. that on a poster and just like the titular bye-bye man it sticks in your brain i think a little bit mm -hmm. all you can do is think it and say it yeah once yeah i, I mean i literally can't stop saying bye-bye man like you know i i can't stop he's here he's here with us right yeah. now so, yes, she sadly passed away a few weeks ago um, after a long battle with ALS. Um, and, you know, I think that I noticed when she died, you know, a lot of people, you know, that you know, there were like variety obituaries and stuff circulating around. And I noticed kind of a lot of people being like, whoa, like this is someone who, you know, has a, a kind of interesting body of work. And I've just, you know, noticed like a sort of curiosity, I think, around her her movies a little bit even if even if people aren't necessarily yet quite rushing to like watch all of these maybe after this episode they will um <laughs> but you know i sort of offhandedly tweeted like oh this is like great material for a hotbox episode and then mike you dm'd me and you were like i would love to do that and i was like okay perfect this is merging of minds you know like some some great overlapping interests and i mean it's perfect also because you were the first person i saw like positively endorse a stacy title movie um you were like i i mean i think there there were definitely there are definitely other appreciators of the bye bye man but i feel like when that movie came out a couple years ago um you were like the first person i noticed kind of drawn to it and yeah so i don't know what like uh I don't know the the bye bye man. Like, there's a lot to say about it. I feel like honestly, but we're, what I don't know when you when you first saw it, kind of like what was your feeling about it? What was your reaction? Um, I think there were a couple things that struck me about the bye bye man on the first viewing. One of them was that, um, in in a number of ways, it felt to me sort of like a turn of the century horror film that had just been dropped somehow into 2017. Um. So, somehow like a much darker turn of the century horror film, but everything mm -hmm. for like a lot of the aesthetic details, the, the color palette, 
Um, mm-hmm. The uh, just the uh, frankly the the visual care uh, granted to the film felt out of place. From I, I find a lot of mainstream contemporary horror films have a kind of rushed and visually anonymous quality. I thought the Bye Bye Man had a distinctive style. Um, everything from the the CGI hellhound to uh, the design of the Bye Bye Man as a character to the way Stacy Title films within the spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just like the mythology and we, like, we can talk about the mythology or quasi mythology, but it, uh, it, it seems to gesture to something bigger. And I know it's based on a, a source, uh, a short story. Um, but I, I feel like the mythology doesn't totally make its way to the screen, but we get the sense that the bye-bye man exists in a bigger context. Yeah, no. I definitely feel that. I mean, I was just like watching it. I was just like immediately uh, sort of captivated by that opening sequence, like this this single take several uh, decades before the movie is set, um, you know, this this guy, uh, you know, who we, we learn the context of all of this later, but, you know, who snaps and, and murders his family and it's shot in this like single take. And I, and I feel like a lot of times I've, I've found that kind of stylistic choice to become sort of oppressive and like sort of cliche at this point, you know, like it's such, there's such a, like so many Netflix originals have those single take kind of, you know, like the true detective long take that, uh, or like uh, the old boy long take, you know, it feels very inspired kind of by that a lot of times, but here it, it felt very, uh purposeful and there was just sort of like just the brightness of the image and just how how it was like leaning into the kind of digitalness from the jump uh really struck me yeah the visual quality of it was the was the thing that jumped out to me the most like the images in that movie feel humongous it makes that little shitty college house feel huge definitely and like it almost like feels like it's like sitting between I don't know at times like there are moments of course with like the wallpaper and stuff where you feel like kind of maybe and also like little kid walking down wallpaper hallway feels like a little bit like the shining or something like that you know but then I think it also reaches forward to like like turn of the millennium virtual camera type like pre-visualization like moving down a hallway type stuff like people often like look to like David Fincher's like late 90s and early 2000s work for and it feels like it creates that effect, but with real like images. Definitely. Yeah, I'm glad you both mentioned the brightness of the opening scene too, because something that stood out to me on this rewatch was the way Stacy Title directs horror scenes in daylight. And actually like a surprising amount of this film takes place in broad day. It, it, I mean, I say daylight, but there's a kind of like um, hazy grayish quality to the daylight. I, I saw Nathan in your write-up, you talked about how it feels like a January movie. It all feels very cold, even mm-hmm. when it's shot yeah. in daylight. Um, but yeah, that the film has a kind of uh, aesthetic texture that's really rich and distinct immediately. Yeah. I mean, it has like this like air to it that I feel like a lot of people ascribe to like digital cameras in a negative way, but I feel like it like creates kind of a crisp quality to everything. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, for, for me, I kind of felt, you, you know, I don't know, sometimes it's easy to make these like uh 
like highbrow comparisons uh as a little bit of a bit you know to try to like code someone into watching a movie but i did feel like it was genuinely a little bit like kiyoshi kurosawa-esque um both kind of thematically i mean we'll talk about that more but also just a lot of Mm -hmm. how the spaces are captured the sort of air the kind of uncanniness you know the fact that this is like a lot of what's shown in the movie is just like very sort of dry ordinary life like these sort of like very sparse decors and and things um but it's it it is infused with this sort of uncanniness and this just unsettled like vibration i feel like that lends itself to the digital texture uh really well and 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 i was also uh i was actually talking about it a little bit in the discord of our kind of sister podcast extended clip uh which i know you just went on mike uh mm-hmm. actually uh, but i was sort of like sent just you know talking up the bye bye man in the in the discord for that podcast and so somebody like went and watched it because it's on netflix right now and they were like oh like you know I, I i can see the like sort of comparison with pulse and cure but i felt like it was very much they were like i felt like it's very much like um toby hooper's you know 2000s like mm. direct to video work, which you're much, much more familiar with, with Toby Hooper than me, Mike, but I, from seeing Jen, like I definitely kind of feel a sort of kinship a little bit with like how the spaces are sometimes filmed or utilized. Um, there's just a like sense of, I don't know, the sense of kind of mise-en-scene here. Like a lot of the, the spaces are like spaces that I feel like don't often really get utilized accurately like in a lot of movies you know this really feels like a sort of shitty college you know house that you like get with your friends and you have a kind of a weird landlord and uh all this secondhand furniture and stuff and the like cheap string globe lights and stuff and like all of those like very sort of real elements i feel like really just sort of enhance the the, like strangeness of the whole mood and and that kind of yeah uh, what what ultimately becomes incredibly nihilistic and like incredibly dark um, the longer yeah. you sit with it. I think that it's like maybe one of the few movies I've seen with like a college lecture scene where the scene is happening in like some like second floor end of the building, like side hallway instead of a really picturesque type of like old wooden material, like stadium seating lecture mm-hmm. hall or something. Well, you mentioned that scene, that classroom scene, and normally like classroom scenes in movies are so like formulaic or kind of like hack (laughs) almost, you know, they just really have that like, you know, emphasize the theme and like that kind of happens, but it's sort of amazing, like formally how I, you know, the audio from the teacher sort of drones out as the kid is like looking at his phone, flipping through his phone and comes across like bye bye man footage. Um, and and then like the teacher you know slams his desk and he's like what the fuck and it's like uh, it's i don't it's like a you know people complain about jump scares i think they're one of the great uh devices of cinema i think there's like nothing like a great jump scare really and i felt like that was kind of like masterful because it both felt like such an authentic moment of like what it feels like to be in a classroom uh but also genuinely sort of i don't know it just it's just like the way the sort of phone is is like held and sort of looked at by the camera also sort of lends itself this to the kind of digitality i guess of the movie yeah that's all really interesting i um 
the the Toby Hooper and Kyoshi Kurosawa comparisons really intrigue me because yeah, I, I mean, something that definitely would align it with Kyoshi Kurosawa is just this sense of inescapable supernatural dread. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't tend to see that kind of dread, certainly in like mainstream adolescent horror these days. Like mm-hmm. I was just surprised with the tonal choices she's making. Yeah. And then like thematically, I, I feel like she's also drawing on the kinds of themes that underpin um, so many works by another great American horror filmmaker Wes Craven, specifically like the way storytelling affects communities and and, uh, the way storytelling can actually make an impact on the world and become actualized in the world, especially Mm -hmm. like think think to like the way Freddy Krueger plays into New Nightmare or um, the plot of My Soul to Take. There are like so many Wes Craven films that build on Deadly Blessing is another one. Mm -hmm. Um, Go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say... it, it just feels like a horror film that actually likes horror films, which we don't get enough of. <laughs> yeah. 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 I haven't seen as many Wes Craven movies, but is he as interested in like the way the telling of the story itself can like impact the story in terms like this one? I mean, yes, it's about like storytelling, but also it has a big interest in like, what if we just stop telling the story? Yeah, def- I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street is basically about, you know, these parents trying to make this uh, evil force um, kind of dissolve out of the community simply by mm. not talking about him, Freddy Krueger. Mm. But you can't get rid of Freddy Krueger by pretending he doesn't exist. He's going to come kill your kids. If you- so there's definitely yeah. this this idea of like historical retribution that plays out. Yeah, no, I mean, I was thinking... <clears throat> while watching the bye bye man so much of freddy versus jason which you know isn't one of the craven freddy movies but is probably of the movies most explicitly about like trying to write freddy out of out of the town's history mm, um, yeah because it's very you know about like you know they they have literally like written him out of the record and cut him out of the newspapers and and removed all the files and everything so once freddy like is sort of remembered um it's it's hard for anyone to know what to do about him because there's no record, there's no body of information and sort of past to turn to of like, how do you stop Freddy? Because it's all been kind of erased. And it's also really interesting in that movie specifically because uh, Freddy uses Jason to make people remember him. You know, he like brings Jason back to life to go on a rampage so people will think it's freddy and then they remember freddy and he comes back uh which is just like very i don't know it's very a a piece with the bye bye man i feel like since it's literally all about this kind of like virus you know this sort of folk tale as as a kind of disease basically Mm -hmm. i think that's where the the obvious like jokey comparison to cure comes in is like memetics and mind viruses and just the way like information and stories spread um but also sometimes about like the uncontrollability of that obviously like nightmare on elm street like y'all were talking about is about dreams and like your mind whenever you're not able to tell it what to think and not to think yeah absolutely i i also think like um the way this film locates so much horror within the unreliability of um one's own senses and one's own consciousness these are like age-old horror tropes and ideas that I think Stacy title is um, exploring in very compelling ways. Like, I mean, this mm-hmm. goes all the way back to like, of course, people like Poe. Um, yeah. So the bye-bye man kind of 
yeah, I, I like the way uh, you both described it as a kind of a, uh, a psychological virus or something. That's so interesting. I feel like this movie is like less interested, honestly, in like the actual material, like in the images, but more so in like the style of how they're presented and things, because the whole movie is just about like information systems and like the way things are conveyed over time and the way things live on and everything. You think about them going to like the library, um, you know, them going to like the wife of the writer who didn't publish a story, um, all these different ways that it's literally just about, you know, the continuance of the event. Mm hmm after it's happened also you mentioned the widow who is i didn't realize this during the movie but who's played by faye dunaway yeah uh and also another cameo uh lee winnell uh of of saw and upgrade and most recently the invisible man mm -hmm. also plays the like the guy in the 1970s who who gets infected by the bye bye man um yeah. which i don't know i feel like people it's he's another he's a filmmaker that people now really talk about as like oh you know like the invisible man is like about themes and sort of things in that sort of elevated horror way um which which i don't know you know there's like a a, a stacy title is also somebody who's like making all of pretty much all of her movies are like about like issues and and taking mm -hmm. a sort of satirical or, or cynical stance towards some kind of usually controversial subject matter um and it's just again it's just sort of like another kind of like puncture to that whole idea of elevated horror because it's like people have been dealing with serious things in genre movies for a long ass time uh since the origin <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I actually, it's interesting that you brought up that idea of like elevated horror versus, you know, however or whatever we want to classify the Bye Bye Man as. Um, I was reading a long article on Stacey Title uh, that was written near the end of her life this morning, and I read that uh, she and her husband used to argue a lot about the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover, that Peter Greenway film. I guess she always called it like super pretentious. Um and uh, one of her favorite movies was Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. And I also mm -hmm. saw in interviews, oh, wow. she was always wearing a Bride of Frankenstein shirt. It all makes sense. Yeah, she was wearing like a Bride of Frankenstein shirt in the Bye Bye Man interview. So I feel like she just had like this affection for pure genre cinema. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm inferring a bit, but. Yeah, but I mean, it also like. You know, this is, I, you know, at least like from an, a kind of industrial genre standpoint, this is the like antithesis of whatever people sort of now generically think of as elevated horror. You know, if, if one side of the spectrum is like an A24 movie, then the other yeah. side of is this, which, you know, produced and distributed by STX films, you know, which, uh, which like is a company that's kind of fascinating to me as this like very, very overtly like mid-budget uh movie house that has a like direct deal with a lot of the theater chains in the u.s and and so um they they are not you know a, a, one of the the big studios um so they make these kind of smaller movies like like the bye bye man and you know this was a movie that was delayed multiple times and and ultimately came out in january um so you, you mentioned earlier mike that i i said in my letterbox review that it's a january movie which i feel like you know, I, I, I was sort of thinking that in two ways of that. It's like, you know, it was lit literally came out in January and is sort of as an object, uh, kind of the platonic ideal of what we think of as like a dumping ground, you know, early year studio release. But uh, 
it's also just like a January movie and that's like this just constant unrelenting midwinter dread. Um, and it's also, you know, it's a movie without a whole lot of like recognizable real faces in it really, you know, you have mm-hmm. Carrie Ann Moss um, as the uh, police detective. Um, the main kid is like, I recognized him as like one of the sons from Big Love, and I think he's like in Big Little Lies too. You know, he's great in this. Yeah, I yeah. know. I, he he's. I mean, it's interesting because like I don't know. He he. he I actually just watched like Big Love last year, so it, his face was just like so familiar to me. Um, and I don't know. He has this always kind of like very like unsettled teen affect in that show. And, you know, you can be and that show being about, you know, uh, about Mormons. It's about, you know, people who often feel uncomfortable in certain spaces because they have such high moral standards. And so he's, you know, constantly like in like sexual situations or like with, with other teens doing bad things, like, and he just always looks uncomfortable in big love. And I think that's like used to such great effect here. Uh, Cause he just looks like constantly like menaced and like, uh, uh, just, you know, like he's, yeah. he's su- suffering and like, I don't know, it just plays in so well to the ultimate kind of ending of this movie, which is just literally like fucking kill yourself. Like, it's just, I don't know the like death drive of this movie is just not something you see in American movies very often of any genre, really mm-hmm. like. I was kind of surprised just in general by the subtlety. Like you mentioned Carrie Ann Moss and this ties into just general like other subtleties of the movie. But like the way that she just like comes into the frame and is mm. used throughout the whole thing is very subdued. But like incredibly, I don't know, it's very impactful, though. It, uh, it's interesting it's, uh, that you brought up the subtlety and Nathan was just talking about the end of the film I first saw it in theaters um, when it was cut for a PG-13, but on my rewatch, I watched the unrated version, which has some, it's only three minutes longer. And those three minutes are basically like one more uh, sexually explicit shot, I think one or two, and then a little bit more, I guess you say language and then gore. There's some, there's some really high impact gory shots in the unrated cut. And I was wondering with the suicide at the end of theatrical, the PG-13 version, I don't remember. Is there like a blood spray that hits the window in the suicide at the end of the version you two saw? I don't think so. I'm trying to know. I don't I don't actually think there is like I think the like the glass like shatters a little bit. You hear you hear the sound and and you see the like he's like the uncle, right? Like recoil and horror. Yeah, like but I don't think you see the blood spray actually. It's grisly in the unrated cut. I was like, holy shit. It's just yeah. like it it's it sends the ending. Um and the whole film actually just again, and it's not like carelessly deployed violent imagery. It's very, very selectively added. And I think it's such a bummer that this wasn't released as an R. I think the the unrated cut gives the movie the teeth that I thought yeah. I remember on a first viewing, like I really liked it, but I was like, this feels like it's lacking teeth a little bit. And the unrated yeah. cut really brings it up to that level. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an, again, another reason why this movie just like astonished me so much is because it is this like teen, teen horror movie. Yeah. Uh, and Stacey titles, 
creative collaborator and husband is a former survivor contestant and he wrote the screenplay for this movie so obviously not a knock on his talents at all but it's just kind of like an unexpected combination you know it's not really like the sort of from the whole package it's i mean i you know i i love to to sift through these kind of movies and stuff and find hidden gems but but um it's it's something that you know is sort of set up to be dismissed by people i think just because of all of these factors and things um but i think uh to talk about like you know to talk about her other movies a little bit and and we can keep talking about the bye bye man through it because there's definitely overlap but i felt like you know Wes craven is is a really sort of valuable reference point um for her because i, he, I was definitely thinking of him watching uh her first feature um the last supper uh from 1995 i believe yeah um and she did have you know a, sh a short film before that uh which i would love to see um yeah me too what is it called down on the waterfront yeah um, and i think that one had jason alexander in it and it was kind of maybe it was maybe the beginning of their relationship yeah i guess jason alexander is like cousins or something uh there's there's like a family cousin yeah there's a family relation and so he was in that short film which is like about a union um and so i'm really fat i would i would just love to track that down both to, because i'm really interested in her work but also for the thematic uh mm. in you know that that sort of premise um and as a Seinfeld fan. Yeah. And also as a Seinfeld, com you know, completionist. Um, and Jason Alexander shows up. I was kind of bummed he wasn't in the Bye Bye Man, honestly. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, but he's in The Last Supper as a character credited as anti-environmentalist. Um, and he also shows up in Snoop Dogg's Hood of Horror as like a British record executive. Um but The Last Supper felt so much like Craven to me or like, you know, now I think, you know, Jordan Peele uh, is, is sort of somebody think of people think of in that mode um, or like I think, Mike, you compared it to Eli Roth on Letterboxd, which definitely, again, and sort of like it's kind of controversial, sort of like tongue in cheek engagement with with social issues definitely is like reminiscent of, of those filmmakers and its social commentary. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think it's um, I would probably side it closer to Roth than Craven or Peel in the sense that it seems more ambivalent and cynical than Craven or Craven yeah. and Peel, I think, make their positions really clear. I think Stacey Title, like Eli Roth often does, just offers this really um, ferocious diagnostic view of all ends of a political spectrum. Definitely. Which is what, yeah, and that makes something like Knock Knock such an antagonistic movie because they're like, what the fuck is going on in this film? And I love Knock Knock and I love Eli Roth for that reason, in a way. I think that political ambivalence makes it more interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the, yeah. So, you know, the premise of this movie is basically this like group of, of self-identified liberal grad students um, one night uh, are greeted at their door by a uh, trucker played by Bill Paxton, um, who I guess his car is broken down or truck is broken down or, or something. And, you know, he's he's coming in from a storm. And uh, so they're like, OK, you know, we usually have these like Sunday night dinners with a guest and we don't have a guest this week. So why don't you join us for this meal? And and so obviously uh, and immediately there's this kind of visible rift between them you know they're these sort of well-dressed 
uh, you know, kind of ostensibly more affluent, moneyed intellectuals. He's got a southern accent, um, and and kind of blue collar guy um and sort of immediately once they sit down for dinner this political rift opens up between them and he starts saying like horribly anti-semitic shit just like zero to 100 really quick (laughs) um and then uh it just becomes all around aggressive sexually aggressive and they eventually end up uh in the heat of the moment and uh uh, sensibly self-defense end up stabbing him and he dies and then this sort of leads to a thought experiment of like what if we kept having dinner with conservatives and trying to change their minds and if we can't change their minds through good old uh, fashioned debate then we'll kill them and bury them in the backyard <laughs> and use their bodies as fertilizers for cameron diaz's tomato garden um so there's this whole series of like you know various familiar faces like the dude from nci and Jason Alexander and like all of these just recognizable character actors playing like, you know, gay hating priests and all of these just bigots and just a whole spectrum, like literally every issue. I was like watching this, co-watching this with a friend and I was like, like, do you want to place bets on like which issue like they're going to confront next, you know, like abortion the environment, gay marriage. So it's really, you know, I think the the kinship with Roth is clear because it's like not really about those issues specifically. It's about discourse, you know, and uh, is about sort of like people, like how people engage with one another based on their identified positions. And um, yeah, it's ultimately like, it sort of makes this grand statement like in favor of centrism in one way at the end. And then with its final image, like kind of completely undoes that. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a curious one. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's politically vexing is how I, I bet it. Like I, <clears throat> I really enjoyed that about it. And I, I think like, especially those bookend scenes, the intro scene you were describing with Bill Paxton, and the final scene with the Ron Perlman character are just like so expertly directed and acted and the way she's cutting between those performances, um, the way the tension builds in both of those sequences, I was just really stunned by. Mm -hmm. That's one thing just generally over her work. It's just like, I've noticed just like a real precision when it comes to editing and cutting images together, like in the Bye Bye Man uh, there's like absolutely astonishing like match cut from the bye bye man touching the main kid on his forehead to the uncle like put ringing the doorbell. Yeah. And and there's just a lot of little, you know, like she's she's not it's not like an image like that every frame or every second. It's not really sort of overly flashy for the most part in most of her movies, but there are these just like really well-considered details in terms of mise-en-scene, mm-hmm. in terms of montage, really just overall just so sharp formally, I feel like. Yeah, I agree. And Cameron Diaz is fantastic in uh, The Last Supper as well. Yeah, yeah, she's really funny. Uh, I, I definitely, I don't know. It's like there's also a quality where it feels sort of like it's, poking fun a little bit at sort of like conversational cinema like my dinner with andre or like you know richard linklater maybe a little bit um it it feels like it's sort of poking in the eye of of that which is very like liberal kind of cinema you know it's it's very much like what the the sort of people the characters in this movie would like go to see uh before Mm -hmm. dinner 
the power of conversation with a stranger truly i mean it's so i don't know this movie is really funny to me now because like from 2020 the like virtues of debate are now so often like celebrated from the conservative side of things you know like you know i feel like if this movie were to be made now it would be like about ben shapiro i mean obviously there's like a definitely like a version to be made of this about like sort of liberal democrat whatever ideology you want to call it um but it's just like you know i don't really associate the, the that kind of mentality with like wanting to have a debate like the characters in this movie too but it's also sort of about how they don't actually want to have a debate they don't actually want to have conversation they just want to kill exactly. people exactly yeah yeah for sure do you um, see any kinship between this movie and like the hunt oh definitely actually i mean it's like you know there's like the sort of premise of like liberals hunting conservatives or whatever is sort of there but i think there's that same kind of rough like ambiguity and just sort of generally yeah. like making a sort of a moment about like a climate of discourse versus like taking a specific stance on an issue Gotcha. It's definitely like, and I, and I don't, I haven't seen it, but it remind like it just in premise, it reminds me of that like, there's that recent like Ike Barinholtz and like Tiffany Haddish horror comedy called like The Oath or something, and it's about like a Thanksgiving dinner with like liberals and their like Trump supporting relatives or something like that. I don't know. I mean, there, I feel like there's a kind of micro genre of this like mm -hmm. type of <laughs> the the liberal spoofs, yeah. I guess. It's uh, interesting that you bring up Ben Shapiro because he his like media company is now getting into film distribution and they just picked up that like diehard riff that's about a school shooter or school shooting survivor. Um, and Stacey Title's last movie she was working on before passing away was was it Walking Time Bomb, which mm -hmm. is about someone who also survives a mass shooting and it's about the way they live on through it rather than this Ben Shapiro movie or distributed movie being about um, somebody surviving in the moment. This one's about kind of the long tail of the trauma of it. And this person who kind of goes on living normally. Yeah. Yeah. So, but to be clear, her film wasn't associated with the Ben Shapiro company, right? No, 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 not <laughs> at all. I'm just good, saying good, it's good. interesting because we have these two kind of like parallel, but probably on totally different ends of the political spectrum yes of how they're approaching that i mean i think that's really interesting you know just like the idea of like i don't know i i've not i i guess like vox lux is is sort of about that maybe um but there's it hasn't been a lot of cinema that's like engaged with that sort of long-term trauma of like mass shootings um and that just feels like sub something that like feels like having a horror background is so fitting with that since horror is like so intimately about trauma and, and PTSD. And, um, mm -hmm. and I mean, after yeah. seeing the bye bye man, she has such like a visual command on like linking like audience perception to character perception. True. And then by the end of that movie, you have like flips where like four different actors are inhabiting two different character bodies and it keeps changing on each like camera switch. Yeah, those sequences are amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, the her the film she was working on sounded so interesting, and I guess they have like notes, emails that she dictated, basically just using her eyelids because she was paralyzed. That the only way she could communicate was um, through eyelid movement on a on a uh, screen. But she had like all these ideas about how to use primary color in the film and and what sort of camera work she wanted to use. But I guess the film, it sounds like, was very much about someone who 
survives a school shooting or not a school shooting, excuse me, it was a mass shooting in a coffee shop. Mm. Um, and it was about how they continue to live quote unquote normally and are vilified for doing so. People mm. kind of try to impose the sort of way in which the character is supposed to live with their trauma, sounds, which mm. sounds so interesting to me yeah. and as yeah. complicated as her other, as like the last supper, I just, I wish that could have mm. happened. And in the same way, we're kind of talking about this political satire and maybe this bite that some of her movies have. The screenwriter also notes, I think you put this in our, our kind of note document. The screenwriter noted that the, the people would have been playing for reality. The, the actors would have. So they would have been this very like straight playing character, uh, probably in kind of grandiose situations. Yeah, uh, I wish it could have happened. Yeah, I mean, even even in um, the movie of hers that I found the, the sort of least compelling, um, Let the Devil Wear Black, uh, which is like a thriller Hamlet riff from 1998, um, which... You know, I, I I wasn't I don't it sort of made me realize that like the Hamlet story structure like riffs on that I'm not really into. I don't know what you know, no shade on on Shakespeare. Uh, but just something about that, I'm just like, I don't know, I just can't get into that that story model. Um, but there are like these very inspired visual moments, like um there's like a shot of like someone pouring dog food into a bowl and it's filmed from like the point of view of the dog food bowl with the with the 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 kibble going in or whatever and uh so you know even then it's like you know i i wasn't really engaged with the material like i was with her other movies but it's still like sharply directed um and i think this the sort of the movie is interesting because it's like a showtime original uh, kind of tv movie i think and it just sort of i think speaks a lot to sort of the career that that a filmmaker like stacy title sort of has had had or has you know has to forge out um where she was working over a span of decades but had very few really realized projects and a lot of them are sort of just very sort of situationally dependent you know like seems like she was really kind of just like trying to get things made um and there was this kind of market in the 1990s i feel like of sort of original like hbo premium cable movies um sort of like th you know <laughs> thrillers like uh red rock west and and stuff like that um that you know before the heyday of, of prestige tv was sort of a place for like female filmmakers or not even just female filmmakers but like people who you know needed work and needed to sort of build their portfolios as, as filmmakers could work um and so i feel like let the devil wear black is sort of an instance of like someone just you know just uh, of that sort of market that's sort of maybe doesn't exist anymore, but also of just sort of like just sort of the situation of so many female filmmakers working within the industry or like not even, you know, you know, most of a lot of her movies aren't really like Hollywood movies, you know, but they're still kind of commercially oriented. Um, but I don't know. It's just, you know, it just speaks to that, like how, how difficult it is for for female filmmakers to really sort of make a a long last big sort of body of work she really yes. sort of you know like uh, her career is like every five years you know or something like that a movie comes yes yeah it's that's a really interesting case because apparently i didn't know this but i just read this morning that apparently there was a theatrical distributor for um let the devil wear oh. black 
but they fell through. So okay, then it yeah. ended up basically being, and, and after the last supper, she was lined up to do a Stephen King movie. She was going to adopt a, adapt a short story called Dolan's Cadillac with um, Kevin Bacon and wow. Sylvester Stallone were attached. Um, so like she had, and then it just fell through. So she had like all these opportunities that would come up and then, and even apparently on the Bye Bye Man, at one point, the Weinsteins were involved at one point, and they were apparently like super patronizing to her and were like, we want to talk to your husband, not you. So oh, even God. at that point in her career where she had like decades of work behind her, like obviously a very experienced filmmaker in terms of mm-hmm. being on a set and working with actors. And yeah, it's a, it's a major bummer that I, yeah, and I agree through the Let the Devil Wear Black, I didn't find as compelling as her other work, but I did find it interesting to look at within the context of this weird subgenre that emerges in American movies in the mid nineties to early two thousands of Shakespeare at a modernized yeah. Shakespeare films. Like there's Romeo and Juliet. There's O with um, uh, what's his name? Josh Hartnett. There's like uh, 10 things I hate about you. There's the Almereda Hamlet came out a year after this. one, So it's just like, yeah, uh, I don't know. There's also Shakespeare and I, right yeah I or mean, is it is it called shakespeare and i or what's the title shakespeare in love that's it yeah, 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 yeah. and it also feels like very much a like sort of post tarantino um yes. kind of like very wordy screenwriterly thriller bulletproof screenplay <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you know like a, like things to do in denver when you're dead or like you know uh fuck you know, there's so many of those movies, uh, but it's just, yeah, it's very much a fusion of those like super 1990s, early 2000s genres. Um, and she also, uh, you know, another sort of uh, a project that didn't really work out entirely uh, was a like reboot of The Lone Ranger um that she wrote with with her husband jonathan pinner uh the aforementioned survivor contestant um which like ended up as a tv movie because it was not picked up as a pilot but it had like chad michael murray as the lone ranger which is like oh, wow. most yeah. 2003 kind of intellectual yeah. property reboot i could imagine made for the cw yeah like literally i'm i'm not exactly sure but that sounds like the most D- wb like uh kind of program imaginable i would love to see that i love chad michael murray i think it's actually no yeah i do too i think it's actually on youtube i i was thinking about watching it but i found it uploaded in like 10 minute chunks on daily motion and in really kind of compressed like 480 or 360 i mean that's sort of like the it's this the status of so much of her work like you know mike you were tracking some of these down in like multiple parts on odd websites uh and and sending me files and stuff um it's 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 really unfortunate um and you know we're also sort of speaking about these kind of strange markets where a filmmaker like stacy title has to find work and that's a really kind of natural segue into uh her next movie which i think is super interesting actually uh snoop dogg's hood of horror um which is this you know Snoop Dogg kind of hosted and curated horror anthology uh, that basically, I mean, exists because of the like rap DVD market that was super prevalent in the late 90s and and up through the mid 2000s. You know, you, I mean, basically kicked off because of the company that Snoop Dogg was involved with No Limit Films, um, Master P, you know, movies like Hot Boys and I'm About It, which are just these 
direct-to-video action movies with like Gary Busey and the whole No Limit roster, and um, and I mean you have you know Three Six Mafia's choices and like Dipset's Killer Season, just all of these rap movies produced, written, sometimes directed by rappers starring themselves, um, and this is like I don't know, it's it's. Uh, much more polished and produced than a lot of those and and is going for something different. You know, it's like a lot of those movies are kind of like autobiographical in a way. And there is that one segment that does feel a little autobiographical perhaps to Snoop's career, but it's, it's going for that, you know, tales of the crypt, uh, tales from the hood, uh, sort of, even it feels a little bit like masters of horror, which like was on at the time that this came out 2006, it feels sort of akin with the, those kind of anthologies. Yeah. Good point. Um, yeah. And also Nathan, you mentioned, uh, Snoop's other big horror film from the two thousands bones, which I rewatched before, um, directed by the great Ernest Dickerson. Um, yeah, it seems like it's got a long lineage, you know, all the way from the, the original EC comics, Tales from the Crypt, up to like the Amicus film versions. And actually, there's a segment in this that reminded me a lot of one of the segments in Freddie Francis's Tales from the Crypt from mm-hmm. 72. And then like up to Tales, Tales from the Hood, which is fucking amazing. I just saw that for the first time, too. It's so good. Um, so, yeah, there's like this really cool lineage that this film is working within. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think bones is like very much both a little bit stylistically, but also thematically, like really a piece with this movie. I mean, it's sort of, I don't really know a whole lot about how this kind of came together, came to fruition. Weirdly, the plot description on Wikipedia is like super detailed. Um, but I don't know, I would, I would really be fascinated to know more about like how this came together because it does kind of feel like Snoop wanted to do some you know, like a Bones 2 of some kind. And I know that Bones was actually made with the intention of New Line finding a new sort of like Freddy Krueger type uh, iconic franchise, you know, headlining figure, which didn't really work out, unfortunately, because I think that's an amazing movie. Uh, oh, yeah. And Ernest Dickerson is such a like, I mean, just great director. Generally, we've talked about uh, we talked about his movie Surviving the Game on our Battle Royale episodes. But that movie is just so visually accomplished so colorful so gross but also you know it feels like it's about very much about like gentrification and mm-hmm. and you know it's this horror movie about urban renewal basically which is yeah. very connected to kind of like the first segment of this movie which feels similarly sort of about how like architecture and buildings can kind of contain and absorb violent trauma yeah and the first segment at the end um she becomes kind of like immersed in the spray paint on the wall in a way, right? Like her blood yeah. is that, that also reminded me of um, a segment in tales from the hood where this cop is crucified with used needles against this spray painted wall. And he oh kind of God. erodes into the wall and he becomes this eternally screaming spray painted dead cop on the, the wall. That first segment also has this fucking incredible image where this dude is like, running and holding a 40 and he slips and impales himself in the head with the 40 and the main girl like looks on and she's like what a waste of beer uh and it's just like i you know i found that to be like the 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 i don't know 
the sort of least interesting of the three segments, but I was just like, the images in it were just like astonishing. I mean, also like there's a demonic Danny Trejo, uh, which is, which is great. Um, But it really sort of like clicked for me and went to another level with the second segment, um, which felt very much sort of in kinship with like Spike Lee's later movies. Um, It's about this like group of black veterans who live in this home together. um, And, they're they've had this like white sort of benefactor and landlord who's let them live there and he is uh run over by his son uh who then uh, assumes control of the property and and decides to move in and he's super racist and um basically enslaves the the guys um so they're trying to figure out you know what to do about this how to get out of this situation um, so both in that kind of premise of like focusing on this group and the sort of friendship and camaraderie between a group of black, uh, I, th- I think they're Vietnam vets, uh, you know, feels kind of like the five bloods uh, from last year. Um, but also in a lot of the these very absurdly comic touches reminded me a lot of Chirac, like um, this, the like racist landlord like strips at one point because he's trying to like force this nurse the like live-in nurse in the home to like have sex with him and his girlfriend and he's wearing like rebel flag boxers and then later there's like a sex scene set to rednecks cotton eye joe um so just those kind of like details felt very much like these sort of like really just kind of broad ridiculous uh uh gags that i just really loved uh but also i feel like there's a lot obviously going on with that thematically with that segment that can be mined from it as well um so i felt you know it also sort of feels akin maybe to to a sort of political filmmaker like spike yeah that's interesting i mean i need to see those uh spike lee films but it it also brought to my mind one of the um installments in uh the amicus tales from the crypt in the 70s there's a there's an installment about a care home for um, blind people at, that is taken over by a really shitty, treacherous landlord who starts feeding them awful food, refusing to give them second helpings, refusing them blankets, um, just generally being an awful person. And eventually they uh, seek vengeance against him in grotesque Tales from the Crypt worthy ways. So it felt like a direct homage to yeah. that, which is great. Yeah, I mean, we love, you know, any kind of kill your landlord <laughs> cinema. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I mean, I was also really uh, struck by the the final segment, um, which is also like gets into some pretty serious stuff. Um, and and just given like, you know, Snoop's many, many years in the rap industry and a lot of the people that he was around or connected to it, it's feels like weirdly personal uh in a way and again i don't really know exactly what the sort of genesis of this project fully was so you know i don't know how much of like sort of ideas maybe were his or stacy titles or other people's um but it's basically about this like up and coming rap duo um and uh you know they 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 make it big and um the sort of main guy that it's following uh, of this of this duo, um, he like as he becomes successful, uh, he starts sleeping with underage girls, and uh, his partner in the in this rap duo like calls him out on it and is like, "Dude, what the fuck? Like, you can't do this. Like, this is horrible. Like, 
you know, not only like, is it going to like destroy our careers? It's also just like a, like, you know, th- like a fucked up thing to do. And I was just kind of like, I don't know, just like how baldly it sort of called it what it was, you know, that it was just like, this is statutory rape, like, and just like also sort of, you know, not, I don't know, like just sitting with this bad character doing bad things and calling them on it was just kind of astonishing considering like, you know, that's been, that's been such an issue in rap for a long time. Like even today, you know, you have rappers, famous rappers like six, nine who have like records of that kind of shit. Um, and, you know, considering like, you know, Snoop Dogg being, so, you know, being working with Dr. Dre and Dre's long history of, of assault and abuse against women, uh, you know, like Tupac's history of, of you know, the, 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 the rape case that he was involved in, like all of that kind of shit. Um, I was just like so surprised that it kind of goes as far as it does um, in its commentary. And also it has uh, the legend Lin Shay as a like <laughs> demonic executive. <He's> great. <laughs> Yeah, per- literally perfect casting. I mean, I'm always like happy to see him oh, yeah, things, yeah. but like perfect casting. I yeah, thought. and you and Jason Alexander too as like this uh, smarmy record producer, uh, with yeah, a British accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so it's just again, it has like a lot of like very great details, and I was also loved this line uh, where like <laughs> the the main rappers like dead partner who you find out that like you know he's he's he was killed and you find uh find out that like uh the main guy you're following is the one who set him up um because he was calling him out for for raping underage girls um and so it's you know this like coming to terms with that and like you know getting like being punished divinely for that um but somebody like his dead his like dead partner comes back and says like oh you're gonna go platinum on death row uh which is just i don't know just a great little great little reference thought i'm like you're doing something there snoop uh and also it ends with this amazing like you know snoop's not in that much of the movie but it ends with this amazing like undead like greek chorus music video of sort of greatest hits and kills from the movie but also him recounting the entire plot of every segment in song so good i oh yeah and i noticed um in the notes we were prepping for the uh for the chat you you point out some visual references that you think the little animated segments in the film were riffing on i don't know yeah i don't know if it's like necessarily like uh, intentional references but i just felt like the yeah there are these sort of animated bookend sequences that create this sort of frame narrative um with snoop dogg voicing this character who like kills himself and like sells his soul so his little sister can come back which also is like another kind of weird link to the bye-bye man this like suicidal sacrifice um but just the visual style felt i mean maybe it was just sort of like of the time of the era and like or maybe just who the artists that were employed or whatever i don't know um but it just felt very reminiscent of like the boondocks um and like Riz's Afro Samurai and the like Mike Mignola Hellboy comics. Um just this like very, I don't know, a lot of sort of like very straight, kind of sharp angles. Um and just I don't know, it was it's it's very it was very interesting because like a lot of anthology movies uh, you know, are not entirely successful. And this tries to do so many different things, and I found it pretty consistently compelling. Um Yeah, yeah. I think the animation is also a cool throwback to like not only the EC comics, Tales from the Crypt, but also something like Creepshow, 
yeah. as well. Um, yeah, I think actually the third segment is probably my favorite. I just thought it was so uh, complicated and troubling mm-hmm. for all the reasons you were describing. Um, and also, yeah, that the, the performances were true. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty consistently interesting, every, every segment at least has, you know, several compelling ideas in it, which mm-hmm. is not always the case with anthology movies. Yeah. And I mean, I think that last segment is almost kind of like, a, <laughs> in some way sort of sets the tone for Bi- the Bye Bye Man a little bit or shows Stacey Title starting to kind of develop that sort of much darker, more extreme kind of mood, because it is a fairly kind of the whole premise and the sort of resolution is just like incredibly grim and, and nihilistic in that third segment. And and that just really is like, I feel like tonal, yeah, tonal preparation a little bit for the Bye Bye Man. Yeah, that's a good point. And of course, it's also her first foray into just straight horror. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that kind of brings us back uh, a little bit to the Bye Bye Man. Uh coming full circle perhaps um but again you know like we've been kind of pointing out i think one of this it's just the really consistent themes that you see with her as a filmmaker is just this real sort of eye for like very detailed images and i mean we've already sort of talked about a lot of these in the bye bye man but um i don't know there's just like a lot of these just like choice details like the bye bye love needle drop and like this this uh, sign in the window that says like say it with diamonds which sort of reminded me of uh in eyes wide shut when he's like in the cafe reading the newspaper and the headline is lucky to be alive um <laughs> so yeah it's just like i don't know it's just it's just I, I there's a thoughtfulness to the construction of all these movies but also a a real strong sharp satirical voice i think and a a, a really defined sensibility i think even though all of these movies are in their own way very different yeah i agree i think she had a a strong point of view um and a kind of commitment to leaning into dark and uncomfortable and bold territory which i also appreciate you know like these movies all take risks too in significant ways so i guess perhaps as we get ready to say bye-bye to the bye-bye man that's not too crass i mean this is an in memoriam episode so maybe that's a little crass but uh it uh <laughs> i don't know I, I do we have any like final kind of uh real feelings or thoughts or or um impressions i guess i, I just want to so. say uh i think stacy title is a filmmaker worth revisiting um and i think the bye-bye man to me is one of the more uh, underrated um, and overlooked horror films of the 2010s. And I think people should give it another look. Yeah, I was really surprised by it. And it I mean, I've only seen this and like clips from some of her other work, but I feel like I want to go in, even though they may not be the most, you know, highly regarded movies or anything like that. I'm interested to go back and, and kind of mine through some of those previous ones y'all talked about. I think it's, you know, she's a really ripe for reconsideration. I mean, in their own ways, a lot of, you know, these movies are, um, I think they're, they're movies that I, uh, a lot of people would find interesting just because, you know, they're kind of those like classic cinephile text almost of like, I think the bye bye man is really great, but 
these others are sort of these like, you know, a little bit mixed bags of like extremely interesting ideas to draw out from stuff that's sometimes not always entirely successful, but has just like, so takes so many risks, like you said, Mike, that has just like consistently inventive images and, and is trying to do something with, with that sort of themes and on a sort of conceptual level. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's just so, it's so sad, um, that, you know, she both did not really get to get the due, I think that she deserved during her lifetime, but also that she's just passed in general. Um, because, the Bye Bye Man is has such a sharp, coherent sensibility, and it feels like, you know, the first true articulation of her, her like voice as a filmmaker, sort of unfiltered from anything else, you know. Because I mean, The Last Supper is you know a sort of independent film, but the others are you know these more like for hire kind of jobs and uh, sort of scrapped together a little bit. And I think The Bye Bye Man is like a true vision of an artist and it's just like i don't know it's it's always sad when when you only get a taste of of oh, a really distinct kind of creative worldview like that definitely yeah so i guess uh that's we we've uh, uh we're all about smoked out uh yeah um mike where can people find you i know there's a lot you are in the midst of a kind of publicity whirlwind for for your upcoming and and uh reissued books um so just anything you have to plug it's the floor is yours sure yeah um so my debut novel shelter for the damned comes out february 26th through journalstone um and my agent and i just signed a really exciting two book deal with journalstone so they're doing a deluxe reissue of darkest hours which nathan was just talking about at the beginning um, so that's going to include author notes for me for each story discussing uh, references and process. And there's also going to be a collection of my horror film criticism in there. Um, and I have an all new short story collection called Peel Back and See coming out through Millstone as well. And if folks want to get in touch with me, they can visit my website, which is MikeThornWrites.com. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, MikeThornWrites for both of those two. Yeah. And of course, also got to point people to your letterbox, you know, if they're not following you, mm -hmm. Mike Thorne is a, is one of the great letterbox posters. I personally, I feel, and a great list maker as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Thank so, you. <laughs> so first encountered Mike through his curatorial work on there. So, I mean, I think that's how we met too. Like, I don't think we initially really met through like Twitter. I think we met more through letterboxed. I yeah. Feel you're like. probably right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what, well, you know, the app that brings people together. What can we say? That's right. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, you know, of course, uh, Hotbox of Cinema, you can find us at Hotbox of Cinema on Twitter, now on Instagram too. Mm -hmm. Just did that impulsively a few days ago. So, if you want some, some weed memes and some updates about our <laughs> shows in your feed, give that a follow. Also, Hotbox of Cinema. And we've got the email address, hotboxescinema at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. And you can find me and Nathan through the Twitter page and everything for the podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah. Seth is at ASAP Sunscreen. I'm at Trillmore Girls. We're out there. Mm -hmm. But uh, until then, till next time, keep on token.
She had the, had the power for the hour, but she chose me Wrong way, but you say, hey, she didn't do it right Now tonight's tonight, and death is in sight You just might, cause it's like Frank Knight with a little more fight I'm kicking back, sick, sick, sitting on my phone Fire behind me, murder, murder, blind me Half pipe beside me, my comrade, my homie Two slinks that are taken, gang anybody for me I'm the, I'm the critter keeper, yeah the grim reaper You won't even see me when I creep up Welcome to the hood, welcome to the place where all the creatures meet The last building on the left on the dead end street You find the skeleton bones, abandoned home It's the hood of horse, nigga, it's on There's no justice, cause justice ain't justice Life is so precious, I'll be your judge to justice Busted a couple of veteranos from the Vietnam War Really didn't know what they was in store, store for Let's just say they ran across a scum lord He tried to pull a fast one, mentally harass him But you know me, I, me, I had to physically harass him What happened to him and his girl? Dog, just ask, ask him, they had it coming Now it's a trip to see that bitch when I blew up her stomach That shit was funny Now give me the rent money You won't be pulling no fast one on my peoples You motherfucking dummy So you best to be acting right Cause I can take you to the afterlife The necropolis and I'm the, and I'm the optimist Then fuck up your shit Another tale from the crib Trip. Welcome to the place where all the creatures meet The last building on the left On the daddy daddy street You find skeleton bones Abandoned homes It's the hood of horse nigga It's on What the gay 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 won't do for you What you won't do to be on top Put your hands in Sell out your own you. Better yet treat your homie like he brand new Let me tell you about this particular fool Thought he thought he was hard, motherfucker named Sod. But I'ma let him go, cause I'm the head nigga in charge. That boy ain't got too long, now he in trouble. Now it's time to pop his bubble. But before I do, give him a chance, tell him repent. He say, say fuck that shit, I do it again. Right then, I knew I had to do him in. Put the grenade in his hand, then let him pull a pin. That's cold, cold how he did his friend. For 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, rap is a dirty game It's getting darker to him I know you think that I can do it Talking to him Come on, man Let me walk you through it Welcome, welcome, welcome To the place where all the creatures meet The last building on the left On the dead end street You find skeleton bones Abandoned homes It's the hood of horse, nigga It's on Welcome to the place where all the creatures meet The last building on the left On the dead end street You find skeleton bones Holes and don't It's the hood of homes, nigga It's on They go the neighborhood. 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 Right, right, right. Uh, nigga, what the fuck is wrong?
When I die, fuck it, I wanna go to hell Cause I'm a piece of shit, it ain't hard to fucking tell It don't make sense going to heaven with the goody goodies Dressed in white, I like black Tims and black hoodies Gotta probably have me, have me on some real strict shit No sleeping all day, no getting my dick licked Hanging with the goody goodies, lounging in paradise Fuck that shit, I wanna tote guns and shoot dice All my life, I'm if I've been considered as the worst Lying to my mother, even stealing out of hers, hers, hers. Crime after crime, from drugs to extortion. I know my mother wish she got a fuck, fucking abortion. She don't even love me like she did when I was younger. Sucking on her chest just to stop my fucking hunger. I wonder if I died, would tears come to her eyes? Forgive me for my disrespect, forgive me for my lies. lies. But maybe mother's eight months, her little sister's two. Who's to blame for both of them? Swear to God, I wanna just slip my wrist and end this bullshit. Throw the magnum to my head, threaten the bullshit. And squeeze until the bed's completely red. I'm glad I'm dead. A worthless fucking Buddha head. The stress is building up. I can't, I can't believe suicide's on my fucking mind. I wanna leave. I swear to God, I feel like death is fucking calling me. Nah, you wouldn't understand. Nigga, talk to me, please, man. See, it's kinda like the crack did the pookie in New Jack. Except when I cross over, it ain't no coming back. Should I die on the train track like Rainbow and Big Street? People at the funeral fucking like they miss me. My baby mama kiss me, but she's glad I'm gone. She knows she and her sister had something going on. I reach my seat, I can't speak. Saw my nigga cheat, tell him that my will is weak.
said it before, and I'll say, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast, fast, fast. You don't stop and look around everyone every once in a while. Six fucking devils stuffed up playing brave guard Had to fucking know to try to enter my graveyard I'm the resurrector, be my sacrifice Commit suicide and I bring you back to life The first was convinced Stuck a water hose in his mouth Fat full blast so his head can explode Second one said, hmm, that's good but I could top it Put an axe up to his head and then he chopped it Blood shot out in every direction The rest didn't know what to do I made suggestions Why they pale, sipping on the salty wine 